Hello and welcome to the Reverend Hunter podcast. This is Tony Jones, the Reverend Hunter. And I am joined, as always, by the Cletus to my bandit, Brandon. I want to say I know that reference. I know those names, and it's drawing a huge blank. So I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess it's a pre-84 reference. Smokey and the Bandit, baby. All right. There we go. Okay. Okay. So Burt Reynolds, correct? Burt, I'm Burt Reynolds, and you're Jerry Reed. Okay. Snowman. Cool <laughs> I mean. The, Cletus Snow, the snowman, who drove the uh, semi and... Uh, I am the, you know, driving the Trans Am. I'm the cool dude who drives the Trans Am and gets all the ladies. It's the mustache. And, and you're the and you're the uh the dude in the semi with the slobbery dog. That actually works out perfectly. I know. I thought actually <laughs> it kind of works out. It really does. And the theme song to that, the theme song to that movie Eastbound and Down is like li- really honestly one of my favorite songs. It's one of my favorite shows. I know it's a and that show is great thing. too. The show is fantastic. I, you know, I've never watched that show, but um, I'm a huge fan of the Righteous Gemstones. Ah, yes, I, I've I've read nothing, nothing so, fantastic stuff about. that. Yeah, I figured Dan, Danny's Danny's a genius. Um, so you I'll have should, to go back and watch Eastbound and Down. You have to if you're a baseball fan, which I know you're a huge baseball I am, fan. Yeah, you would absolutely love it. He he like he's the epitome of a bunch of pitchers from the nineties ish combined. It's it's okay. It's great. I'll definitely watch it. I'll definitely watch it. Well, uh, what you been up to buddy staying out of the snow. I mean, I'm trying it's, it's pretty impossible when it's snowing every other day. And then on the off days, it's raining. (laughs) I know it's been a nasty spring. It has, but we need the moisture before summer because last summer kind of killed everything. True. So Ben, it's been a long time. How, how, what have you been up to? Well, I I've been busy, man. I I spent a week in Los Angeles teaching a class, fun, which went really well, and it was nice and warm and sunny most of the days. So that was super fun. And uh, on the day this podcast drops, I will be on a plane to Istanbul for ten Ooh. days. Istanbul. Wow. What's 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 in Istanbul? That's that sounds amazing. A, a lot of it. amazing things are in Istanbul. It's been the top of my bucket list for a long time of cities to visit. My daughter is studying abroad. Well, actually, bo- both of my college kids are studying abroad this semester. My daughter's in Copenhagen, Denmark, and my son is in um, Greece and Italy. Wow. Well, my daughter has the whole week of Holy Week off because in Europe, you know, in Western Europe, it's like they shut down for Holy Week and there's no classes for Easter, you know, around Easter and stuff. So she gets the week off and we're, we were just like, where should, let's meet somewhere, you know, <laughs> excuse me. And so I uh, was like, how about Istanbul? And she said, yes. And there we go. We're that going is, to Istanbul. That is so cool. That should be so much fun. I, I can't um, see those pictures. Yeah, I'm I'm completely jazzed. I'll of course we'll be posting on Insta on the Reverend Hunter Insta if anybody wants to uh follow along the trip. Um yeah, Istanbul, man. It's I'm just super excited. There's a ton of history in that in that city and uh you know, it's the only city on two continents, half of it's in Europe and half of it's in Asia. Uh the first day we the first full day we're there we're taking a culinary walking tour 
all day. So <laughs> we'll be walking and eating our way around the city. So day two, you'll be resting. Yeah. Well, <laughs> day two, yeah, exactly. We'll be walking off the calories. Um, yeah, it's going to be great. Really That's excited awesome. about that. Yeah. The only time I've heard of Istanbul, not the only time, I shouldn't say that, but I, I just keep thinking of They Might Be Giants. That song just rolling through. My I know my wife sings that song to me, and then you know you can't get it. It's one of those tunes you can't get out of your head. So don't sing it, buddy. I won't, I'll, I won't. I'll, I'll, all day. It'll be stuck in my. Head. And lucky for the audience, I can't play it because of copyright claims. So you're yeah, welcome. there we go. Yeah, <laughs> I'm reading a huge 700 page book called Istanbul: A Tale of Three Cities because that city has been, you know, it it was Constantinople and then it was Byzantium, the head of a smaller empire than the roman empire but still a powerful empire and then the ottoman turks took over in 1453 and since then it's been istanbul and it's been a you know muslim city so it's a fascinating place with a ton of history and ruins and incredible food and stuff like that i'm yeah i'm looking forward to it one random question are you going to be visiting any mosques while you're there oh yeah absolutely yeah i'll definitely be the blue mosque in istanbul is very famous and large and beautiful and stuff and then the biggest church it's not it's no longer a church but it's called the hagia sophia when it was built uh it was the largest church in the world then after the ottoman invasion it became a mosque now it's been decommissioned so it's it's uh, it's a museum, but it still has a lot of both the Christian and the Muslim art inside of it. So that's I'm just totally jazzed about getting to see the Hagia Sophia because I've read about it for a long time. So yeah, man, it's, it's going to be something else. So we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it next month. Uh, and then next month, I'm going to the Outdoor Writers Association of America in Casper, Wyoming in May. Uh, and if, you know, if anybody list, is listening to this, who's a outdoor writer, I strongly encourage you to, or podcaster or in, in any way involved in outdoor media, I'd encourage you to go to that conference. It's, there's just an incredible networking time. Plus, I mean, Casper, Wyoming, it's going to be amazing. Yeah. And I think I'm going to get to turkey hunt when I'm out there. Wow. So that should be super fun. Yeah. Jeez. You, I, I'm jealous of your next uh, few weeks. I'm going to say that much. <laughs> it's been pretty it's been a pretty good run. I got another trip to Los Angeles in between there too. So there's a lot cooking right now. It's good to be busy. All all in favor of that. Um yeah. Hey, this guest this week I'm super pumped about uh David Yamani is a professor at Wake Forest. He's a sociologist, which we talk about, but it's it's pretty fascinating because he's he's a liberal who has converted to being like a gun fanatic. The dude loves guns, and it's been a it's been a wild ride for him um, since he shot a gun for the first time just a few years ago. And honestly, one of the most interesting things is his research work as a sociologist has shifted. He used to be primarily a researcher of American religion, particularly Catholicism. But since he kind of discovered firearms, he has leaned into that as his research area. And my goodness, you'll, you'll hear in this podcast, the guy knows so much about 
gun culture in, in the United States, how it's shifting, how people view firearms, uh, you know, why firearms are such a contentious issue and such a complex issue and how so many of the talking points of politicians like we need common sense gun laws or let's get rid of assault style weapons. He's he he just as as a researcher, he's like those are actually while they might be good political talking points, they actually make no sense policy wise, and we get into that. Um, so you know, as as I've talked about here on this podcast before, Brandon, and I think you and I probably share this in common. Like, we're not anti-gun by any means, but we're also, as you and I both lean more more liberal, are somewhat wary of like unconstrained gun laws in the United States and what's the role of firearms and guns, both in hunting and in self-protection um, and in recreation, honestly, shooting for sport and for fun. It's complex. We've, we've discussed it here in the past and which makes David just a, an ideal guest for this podcast. You can find listeners can find David Yamani's, uh, website well it's just his name and but and if you google him you'll find him um you can you can read about the books that he's published in the past i know he's working on a new book that's going to be a more popular level book kind of about how he went from a gun skeptic to a you know a gun lover gun owner um that's going to also incorporate what he calls the shift from Gun culture 1.0 to gun culture 2.0, which is kind of in some ways the difference between me and him. 1.0 is more like people who use guns for for hunting and and sport shooting, and 2.0 is more people who use guns for self defense, home protection, and things like that. We get into that, but he's doing a lot of writing on that. He's got an awesome YouTube channel where he posts his latest uh, thoughts on his research and stuff like that. Um, he's part of the Liberal Gun Owners Association of America. All sorts of great stuff. So click on that link in the show notes. You'll learn more about him and you can support his work. Um, and of course, you can support us here at the Reverend Hunter Podcast by uh, liking, subscribing, reviewing, uh, rating our podcast sharing it with friends, listening to other podcasts on the Talk North Network, all our sister podcasts out there, um, and, you know, give us a shout-out in social media. That would also be great. So thanks for your support, for listening. And uh, here is my conversation with author, professor, and sociologist, and gun owner, David Yamani. Hey, David, thanks for coming on the podcast. I'm so excited to be here. I can't wait to talk more about our common interests. Yeah, it's great to see you. Um, it's great to see you again, even virtually. Uh, we we got to know each other at a conference in Vermont and ended up sitting together at multiple meals because we found we had a lot in common and, and uh, had some great shared conversations. Yeah, we had uh, stuff in common just by virtue of being at that conference. But then as we were having lunch, we realized we had a lot more in common than we even knew. 
That's right. Yeah. I don't suppose you're going to, uh, you're, you're going again, cause that's not your group, but the next one's in Casper, Wyoming. So I'm heading out there in a couple months for the next, uh, outdoor writers association meeting. I would really love to go. Uh, my wife really wants to go to Yellowstone and uh, oh. you know, there's so much interesting in that area, but yeah, we'll take a pass this year, but uh, you know, Another I have some time. designs on on future projects that might take me to that uh, outdoor writing conference more often. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Well, boy, you have such an interesting journey, and we do have multiple intersection points. Um, you know, you're a sociologist, and I have a I have a cousin who's got a PhD in sociology, and it's funny because I watched an online talk you gave recently, and. And uh, you kind of make fun of that. And this was my cousin's line was like, sociologists, they're the people who tell you why everybody looks the same direction in an elevator. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a hundred percent true. And in fact, I, when I took introduction to sociology back in 1987, we had to do a, a folkway violation exercise to so go out and break some small rule of social life. And the one I did was getting on an elevator and facing the back of the elevator to prove <laughs> why exactly everybody looks to the front. So, you know, you, that's your funny. Cousin and and is there are... a name? Don't you have to put in some kind of ism name, like look front ism or something <laughs> sociology does yeah. yeah well we we do call those folkways you know the small rules of social life that that show our common agreement and make life go a lot smoother okay let me ask you something about this because my I, it's really been bothering me and this is outside of your field of expertise other than the fact that you're a sociologist but um i've been complaining a lot about, you call them folkways Folkways, yeah. So small norms. So we distinguish between mores, which are your kind of more significant or serious sure. norms, and folkways are your sort of smaller, minor norms, manners, and that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So one of, you know, we don't do a lot of things every single day anymore or whatever, but I do, I go to the gym every single day. I go to, and I, it's like this kind of high end fitness center. My, my wife teaches yoga there, but I'm watching folkways change. Like for instance, um, more, okay. It's, it's like, there's a hot tub in the men's locker room and it's everyone's naked. People don't wear swimsuits cause it's just in the men's locker room and it's an old club. And it's a lot of old guys who go to this club cause it's kind of richer, you know, more wealthy people who can afford it kind of thing. But more and more I'm seeing younger guys in the hot tub with their phones watching video, hmm. which is odd because we're all walking in and out without clothes on and easily these guys could be snapping photos or shooting video i mean it's very inappropriate i think plus why the hell do you need to watch a video while you're in the hot tub like good lord so then there's um and then there's like at so many health clubs there's just this line of treadmills and yesterday there was a woman walking on a treadmill with her phone. She was holding her phone out on speakerphone, having a very loud conversation oh, yeah. with somebody while she's on a treadmill. Now, these seem to me would be, I mean, I thought these are ma massive breaches of etiquette and respect for other people, but I guess you'd call them the breakdown of some kind of folkways because I would never consider putting my phone on speaker while I'm on a treadmill with all these other people around. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we, we use that term folkway to sort of distinguish them from what we would think of as being more socially significant norms. 
uh, don't steal, you know, don't beat other people up and that sort of thing. But, you know, the, those small violations of sort of common expectations can start to degrade on people enough that they can become more serious points of social conflict. So, uh, you know, with new technologies always drive uh, us to reconsider appropriate behavior. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see if as we get cohort replacement, i.e. you and I die off and younger people replace us, whether, you know, it'll just be a cacophony of people listening to their, their phones or having phone conversations on speaker in, in the gym or whether there you know might be some backlash against that. When a folkway degrades, does it ever come back or is that always just a one-way street? I think that uh, usually they get replaced with other folkways. You know, we might think that, well, you know, that was really extremely arbitrary. And so, you know, we can do with some other uh, way of organizing our social life around those issues. Um, you know, so it seems from the point of view who are of people who are invested in the previous folkways, it seems like a degradation, you know, from the perspective of people who are pursuing alternative folkways, it's just change, <laughs> you know, which is, you know, I think a lot of things about, yeah. you know, what happens in society, right. From one perspective, it's decline. And from the other perspective, it's change. And we could certainly, you know, talk how about how that gets reflected in how people practice religion, for example. Yeah. Or, or how people, and we could get to this, how people, um, it, there's a big difference in a folk way I'd say between like a concealed carry pistol and someone who's brazenly showing their sidearm, you know, in, in a supermarket or something like that, yeah. which we don't see here in Minnesota. I'm sure there's a lot of people with concealed carry. You just don't see people. Maybe you can't in Minnesota, but That'll, that's another big one, yeah. I think. Well, there, I think we're getting more at the level of mores, right? There's oh, yeah. more significant uh, norms because those things get enshrined in the law. Uh, right. And so, but we certainly see a change with, in the state of North Carolina, for example, open carry has never been illegal because it was considered to be the honorable thing to do. If you were an upright man, you would show that you're armed and only a someone who was shady would conceal their weapon. And now it's almost reversed entirely. Although you can still openly carry in North Carolina, a lot of people are, are very uncomfortable with that, including people who are gun owners who really? concealed carry. So okay. things um, change. Yeah. Th <laughs> things change. I've got so <laughs> many other folkways I want to talk to you about. Like in Minnesota, it used to be everybody parked on the street facing the correct direction of traffic. And I go to other parts of the country, in the South, for instance, mm -hmm. where there's kind of, and up here in the North, where there's a lot of, you know, um, Scandinavian, Northern European uh, people who are very, tend to be rule followers, law abiding type people. And I go down South and I'd be like, I can't believe people parked the wrong direction, pointed the wrong direction on the street. And now it's here. It's, it's here. Oh yeah. And it's really distressing to me. <laughs> I, I constantly told my kids, you can't park facing uh, into traffic because it's against the law. I, right. I thought, I thought it was illegal. It they, is illegal, they, but not okay. enforced. <laughs> but yeah. Not they enforced. have done that their whole lives. And their response is always, 
we've done that our whole lives and we've never gotten a ticket and no one's even ever said anything to us about it. Okay. So you and I are on the same page about that, but I never park against the flow of traffic. I'm always parked in the correct. Same, same, but man, we're a dying breed. You and me. Uh, um, Okay. Let's talk about how you got into sociology. What you grew up in the Bay area of California and how did you end up um, finding your way into a, a PhD in sociology? Yeah. So uh, I was really interested. And so I graduated high school in 1986 and uh, a lot of foreign policy issues were really big at the time. Apartheid in South Africa, you know, the Contras in Central America. Um, We were in the middle of a Cold War with the Soviet Union. So I headed to American University in Washington, D.C. with the intention of uh, going into the Foreign Service. Uh, studied Russian language and history, uh, you know, studied nuclear policy, things that were very current at the time. Uh, But the more I got to understand how the Foreign Service worked and how U.S. uh, foreign policy worked, I just didn't really have the stomach for it because I was a bit idealistic about what I thought, you know, I could do uh, to make the world a better place. And so, I fled from the real world of politics into the ivory tower world of sociology, which allowed me to to maintain my interest in in the social world, uh, but not have to get my hands dirty uh, in the world of politics. And once I decided to to go into sociology, I quickly decided that uh, I would be interested in becoming a professor. So I left uh, American University, went back to UC Berkeley, uh, which had a much better sociology program and was cheaper. Um, graduated from there in 91, straight into graduate school at the University of Wisconsin. Um, did my seven years there, wrote a dissertation on the role of religious uh, lobbying organizations in the Wisconsin state legislature. Mm. And uh, from there, got my first job at the University of Notre Dame, I stayed in the, the field of the sociology of religion and, and focused my attention on Catholicism and in those years. Uh, and then in 2005, moved on to, to Wake Forest and into a different sort of phase mm-hmm. of history. But mm-hmm. sociology really represented truly a, a kind of uh, hands clean version of the kind of politics that I was interested in that took me to Washington DC in the first place. You and I, I, I also graduated from high school in 86. So, you know, you and I are part of the lost gen X generation <laughs> that will be, will be forgotten. I'm afraid. Uh, we're like that in the, um, in the hourglass, we're like the narrow part, you know, the small forgotten generation. Um, so at Notre Dame, you must have crossed paths with Christian Smith. Indeed. I assume, right? He, he, when I was doing my doctoral work, which was after yours, I took 10 years, uh, in the church, 10 years working between my master's and my, and my PhD, I spent 10 years working and his work was super influential on the religious habits of teen teenagers and stuff like that. Um, And I'm sure he's, and I'm, I cite him many times in my dissertation, but that's quite a, um, for the study of religion, the sociological study of religion, Notre Dame is kind of a powerhouse. What was, what was the uh, tenor like when you were there? That's how I was, I left uh, in 
2005 before uh, Chris Smith had come there. I had Oh, he was at UNC before UNC, that or something? Yeah. Yeah. I had crossed paths with him uh, quite often. And uh, just because of the nature of our similar work on secularization, for example. Um, but he wasn't at Notre Dame and while I was there. In fact, we tried to hire him when I was there and we couldn't get consensus in the department uh, as to whether to do that, which you know was actually part of the reason why I started to think I, I may need to move on from here. Uh, because I thought if if people didn't recognize the work he was doing as outstanding, what must they think about my work, which is you know pale by comparison? Um, and not only his work, but his ability to land huge grants. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you would I think mean, he, that would be very attractive to a to a university. Yeah, yeah, he did. He did a lot of that. But there, I think you know there was some division in in the department as to how much the religious character of the institution should affect what we did as a department and his, mm. you know his work uh at the time was kind of transitioning into kind of a little bit more explicitly normative i think uh, i don't know that he would characterize his work that way but uh, you know i think it had a clear normative bent yes. to it yeah. um and so i think that that made people uncomfortable i think it made you know the work i was doing on the catholic bishops and politics and on um, the process of converting to Catholicism, I think people also maybe thought was a little bit too pro-religious and normative. And so oh, interesting, um, you know, I felt like a little bit uneasy and that's, you know, in part of one of the reasons I looked to leave before I got pushed out was because, you know, I thought the work I was doing was, was perfect for that institution. And, you know, people still said, well, you know, it's good, but you know, we'll see. <laughs> oh, I mean, higher ed. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's messed up. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, that's a whole nother conversation that would bore most listeners about the brokenness of higher ed. Uh, your, your study of Catholicism, did that come out of any, uh, like a, a personal commitment of your own, or was it purely an academic interest? Yeah. Um, you know, I think my interest in religion, you know, was in in part academic and in part kind of personal interest. I when I went to graduate school, I thought I was going to study uh, race and education. Those were kind of my main areas of interest. But when I was an undergraduate, I um, took a class with Robert Bella on the sociology of religion, only because you know my peers said. Oh, you, if he teaches a class, you have to take it because yeah. he's who he is. And I had no interest in the sociology of religion per se, but took the class and was just blown away uh, intellectually. But he was also the first uh, sort of person I respected intellectually who was also openly religious. I had right. never seen a single faculty member who openly spoke about their religious faith. And I came from an orthodox liberal California Bay area background where, you know, no one talked about religion. I wasn't raised religious. And so that sort of planted a very deep seed in me of, you know, breaking down the wall between the intellect and faith. So uh, actually when I was in graduate school, um, I had this moment in the bookstore when you actually used to physically go in and buy books for classes that, I saw some books uh, for a class that um, 
Bella used to talk about Eliade and Rudolf Otto and Maslow mm-hmm. and these sorts of things. I said, oh, what? what's that? So I ended up taking another sociology of religion class just as one of my electives. And at that point, I kind of left the religion, the race and education thing behind, became fully immersed in uh, the study of religion. And also at the same time was grappling with my own faith, ended up converting to Catholicism while I was in graduate school. Hmm. Uh, And so my dissertation was on all religious groups who were involved in lobbying. But in the last year of my doctoral work to fund my studies, I worked as a policy analyst for the Wisconsin Catholic Conference. Hmm. Uh, and so, you know, kind of that dovetailed. I went to to Notre Dame in part on a kind of Catholic affirmative action program. Uh, <laughs> okay. And, um, you know, when I wanted to expand that work, I decided, well, I'll, I'll study Catholic bishops conferences nationally at the state level. So that was uh, the first book I did out of out of my doctoral dissertation. Okay. Uh, but it was really a dovetailing. So then when I got tired of studying religion and politics, I started this project on uh, the right of Christian initiation of adults in the Catholic church, which I had gone through myself a decade earlier. And uh, so that became the kind of next major project mm-hmm. I did. So I was, you know, I was definitely working at the intersection of my personal interests and my academic expertise. What what's fascinating about studying the religious lives of Americans to you? I think just the you know coming out of a sociological background the the fact that people have religious lives, you know, I think that was the dominant notion within, you know, sociology that religion is this relic of previous times and that as society modernized, it would go away and yet it doesn't go away. Uh, you know, to our previous conversation, you know, some people feel like religion is in decline in the same way we mm-hmm. feel like folkways are dying out, but, you know, really you know, it's changing shape and changing form. And, you know, there's something about, I think, human beings, which always draw them back to some fundamental questions Um you know, that, that science and materiality can't really fully answer. Uh, And, you know, maybe increasingly people disregard those kind of questions, but there's always a part of the, the human population that is going to be asking those questions. So that, to me, that was always what was interesting about studying religion is just how unexpectedly potent it is in contemporary society. Yeah. I mean, I, wouldn't you say one of the mistakes in your field was the secularization thesis, which was so popular probably when you were maybe what in grad school or even before that, that so many sociologists, they predicted the decline of religion and it didn't decline. And in fact, fundamentalism rose around the globe uh, as a, as they didn't they i mean to overly simplify it but like with globalization and pluralism people would kind of realize that religion as you say the word relic is a relic of the past is based on kind of supernatural cultural ideas that have been overthrown by science and technology and globalization pluralism but it people somehow are fundamentally that religion is sticky somehow yeah and yeah, you know, it was a hundred percent in. It was the secularization thesis was very much 
under debate by when I was in graduate school. And so, you know, the, I think you had the old version, the very kind of simplistic mechanical, uh, you know, modernization leads to religious decline version, but then you had more sophisticated versions. You know, I think Robert Bella was a secularization theorist in the sense that he talked about as society modernizes, institutions become more differentiated and that creates these different spheres. So religion is no longer overlapping perfectly with government and, you know, other, the economy. And uh, so it doesn't mean that religion's disappearing. It just means it's taking on a different form. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, my dissertation and, and that book on, on uh, Catholic bishops lobbying really took this new version of secularization theory and tried to show the usefulness of it, which is that you know, uh, religion transforms the relationship of religion to authority transforms, but that's not the same as saying religion declines. And in fact, you can have the differentiation between religion and these other secular spheres that can actually make the religious sphere more vital. Hmm. You know, if, uh, if it's not encumbered with these other social responsibilities, uh, you know, people can get into religion just for the sake of religion and the things that religion does well. Yeah. Of course, there's always a struggle. Like, you know, those (laughs) institutions get differentiated and de-differentiated and right. um, So that dynamism is also one of the things that makes it challenging and interesting to study. Yeah. Well, I have many thoughts on the the death of American Christianity as we know it. Protestantism, I'm, I, I mean, I think Catholicism will, is probably a little more robust, particularly among immigrant populations. But boy, anyway, uh, <laughs> you, you, you moved to a ba- you moved to a Baptist university and started studying guns. So, yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about that shift because it's so fascinating. I mean, uh, we're not only the same age, but similarly uh, moved. I, I, I mean, I studied religion, but differently from inside of it, you know, uh, and in get, my doctorate is in theology from a theological seminary and that kind of thing. Um, but I, for personal reasons, as listeners of the podcast are, are familiar with that, that I, you know, moved out of the church, not really by choice, but more by force because of personal collapse in my own life, a, a marriage and custody and stuff like that. And I really found great solace in the outdoors and particularly in hunting, uh, as you and I talked about when we, when we met in, in last year in Vermont and hunting has become like a hugely spiritual, um, endeavor for me and given me meaning and put, put me in touch with transcendence. Uh, and that's my journey because I come out of the ministry and stuff like that. Your journey into guns and firearms was a bit different, but it was also personal, which is interesting because that's, I think not first. I just want to say that I appreciate as a, a, a well lettered professor that you allowed your personal interests to, to pull you into a new area. Because I think people who aren't in the academy don't understand how entrenched these different guilds are. And it's not like in your 40s, you can say like, oh, I used to study this one thing. Now I'm going to study this totally different thing. Because you were like, you were deeply into the sociology of religion. You were 
you were editing journals about it. You were chairing uh, national committees, uh, you know, uh, 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 study that that studied American religion and stuff. And then you really have done this significant shift, which is gutsy. I mean, it's it's uh, many many professors wouldn't do that. They get they get they they pick their lane and they stay in their lane. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that journey. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, you know, you have a ton of sunk costs once you uh, get to that stage of your career. For me, uh, I think there was some push and pull involved. You know, I think kind of leaving Notre Dame with a bit of a bad taste in my mouth uh, uh, and then still having to work a lot of years on the this project on becoming Catholic. Uh, you know, that took so long. It goes backburnered and frontburnered with the transition. And so that I think was a driving me to look for something new. Like I needed to find some kind of new research by, by that point, the, the becoming Catholic book was kind of my ticket to promotion to full professor. And I was really thinking like, if you're fully promoted, you know, and you have tenure, you can do what you want at that point. You know, you're not beholden to uh, what you're an expert in. And it's still sort of risky to say, like, now I'm going to go from being somebody to being nobody. Uh, but I was so anxious to do anything other than <laughs> to study religion at that point. Yeah. I was really open to anything. And then, yeah, and uh, I started um, just kind of noticing guns all around me. You know, I had no actual interest in, in guns at the time. I was pretty scared of guns because I had no experience. I'd never touched uh, an actual firearm before. Um, and, and yet it seemed like something that a lot of other people were doing, you know, I, for some, somehow I was, was safely inoculated from American gun culture in San Francisco, in Washington, DC, in Madison, Wisconsin, in South Bend, Indiana, in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, but I, I got to North Carolina and I couldn't ignore it anymore. You know, it was everywhere around me. Uh, and so, you know, there was that draw into doing something brand new in terms of scholarship. There was an interest in this weird world of guns that I knew nothing about, but seemed very common for other people. Uh, and, you know, that's where the the dovetailing of the personal and the the professional came together. You know, it's interesting. I think that um, I've heard you say before, the lack of sociological research on guns is shocking relative to the number of Americans who have guns or use guns or have shot a gun. I mean, this is one of the things, right, that you that you talk about and write about is how common guns are in American culture. But it's why do you think there's this gap of of sociological reflection on Americans' use of guns? Is it because the academy tends to be liberal and therefore kind of anti-gun at its core? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a, a selection of the types of people who end up you know, getting PhDs and getting faculty positions that they tend to be people like me who you know don't have any particular background with guns or have a very limited background with guns, you know, tend not to be, you know, from rural parts of the country, probably less likely to be from the South, less likely to have any kind of uh, police or military, you know, background in their families. 
you know, so it really just selects for people that that's not part of life. And then, so the interest in firearms then becomes the things that stand out in sort of the media and the popular imagination, which is the downsides of, of firearms and criminality, epidemiology, and, uh, you know, and I don't fault sociology as a whole for that because, you know, sociology in general studies what's wrong with the world, not what's right. You know, we have, we, we have classes called social problems. We don't have classes called social normality. Uh, and so, you know, the enfi- entire field in the sense is constructed on what's going wrong. Uh, so it's natural that sociologists would focus on that part of guns. At the same time, sociologists do study some normal aspect of life remarkable you know like you know positive sides of religion positive sides of sport positive sides of education and recreation so there are ways that sociologists could study guns that don't focus on the deviant aspects of it that that we just choose not to and i was surprised when i got into the field how very little had been done outside of the study of gun violence uh Tell me about the first time you shot a gun. It wasn't that long ago. No, it was in uh, 2011. So I was uh, 42 years old, not quite 43. And I was, again, lar- had no experience with guns, was largely afraid of them. and But I thought they're kind of all around me. So maybe I better figure out what's all what this thing is all about. Um, a friend of mine knew a trainer for the North Carolina State Police. He or she arranged to, for us to go out to his backyard shooting range and you know he he gave me a sig uh 226 which is nine millimeter duty pistol semi-automatic pistol and gave me just a couple of bits of advice on how to grip it and how to stand and how to aim it and you know i i pulled the trigger i think in the stress of the moment i don't remember a lot of the details of that i wish if if I would have thought ahead of time to write a book about it, then I could have documented every last detail of that moment. But the the thing I distinctively remember is just missing the target completely. You know, there was wow. not not a single hole anywhere on the paper that wasn't that far away. Um, some, you know, my immediate response after kind of recovering from this explosion arm an arm's length from my face was, you know, how do I get the hole to show up, you know, where I'm trying to to put the hole and he, you know, would give me a little adjustments and I get a little bit better and better. And so by the end, I was able to kind of hit near where I was aiming. And so the dominant feeling I had coming away from that was of the challenge of, you know, trying to make a hole where you're trying to make a hole in the same way that, you know, if you're throwing a dart, you want it to go into the bullseye. If you're shooting pool, you want it you know, to go in the pocket, if you're throwing horseshoes, you want it to, to get onto the post. So, you know, that was the, the thing that I came away with was not, was, was just, this is something that's very challenging to do. And I got to figure out, you know, how to do that more and better. So, but, but darts and horseshoes aren't going to kill another human being. If you throw it, throw a horseshoe in the wrong direction. You might, you know, knock somebody on the head and give them a bump, but you're not going to blow their head off. So like, this is, this is, I think the tension that I want to try to unravel with you a little bit is gun ownership is a hobby for many Americans. It is for me because it's related to my primary avocation, which is hunting. 
Uh, I don't own a pistol or handgun at all, and I rarely shoot them. They make me a lot more nervous than long guns, actually, because I think they, well, I, we can get into that. We can get into that. But mm -hmm. when you're having this, I want to go back to that 2011 experience. That must also be part of your head that this isn't a horseshoe. This is like an extraordinarily dangerous modern weapon. Yeah. I mean, I, my thought was that this thing is dangerous and it, it could you know, hurt me if I don't know how to use it. That was my orientation. Um, but I honestly didn't come away from that moment thinking, you know, this is a tool of destruction, hmm. um, you know, because that wasn't the, the context within which I was trying to figure out, you know, how to make that hole where I wanted to. So it was, you know, purely an issue of being safe with it and also a kind of sporting purpose of of the gun now you know over time i would definitely uh, come to think much more about the the gun as a weapon uh both for offense but also for defense uh because the other thing that was sort of deep kind of wasn't in the forefront of my consciousness at the time was this moment i uh, experienced in the parking lot of my apartment complex when i was with my kids and we came across a neighbor of mine who was having a dispute with, uh, you know, her boyfriend or drug dealer, whichever, or both. Uh, and, you know, she, she ended up at my front door, you know, knocking and in, in a panicked way, because she said he had threatened to kill her and stole her phone and stole her car and she needed help. And so, you know, that had happened several months before I ended up at the range you know, but it wasn't it wasn't in the forefront of my mind that that was you know one of the reasons I might you know get involved with guns. But but after the that time at the range, it became more and more like, hey, you know, this might have helped me address that situation I was having before. And so that how how would it have helped? Well, you know, if things had gotten a little worse, you know, that I would have could have found myself in a situation where, you know, what if it wasn't just her at the door, but what if it was her and him at the door? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what if, you know, we, I filed a report with the police after she called the police, uh, you know, what if they would have contacted him, talked to him about that? And he realized because I, intervened in their parking lot dispute that I was the one who was involved in calling the police. And he knows exactly where I live because I live downstairs from her. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, so that just raised, you know, a lot of questions for me that I had not really asked before since, you know, I live a life fortunately very free from violence and conflict uh, yeah. and perceptions of threat and vulnerability. But in that, in that moment, as I sort of unearthed and reflected on that moment more and more, you know, there was, you know, very much of a feeling of uh, vulnerability that I wouldn't have been able to protect my kids if it came to that. Well, I'm, we're going to circle back to that because I want to talk about the efficacy of guns at, in defensive, in a defensive mode. Um, Cause you, most of us live on anecdotal evidence about guns and you're, you have the data mastered. So I, I mean, you, you're, you're, 
you know, you, you know it, but before we get there, I want to talk about gun culture 2.0 and how, how did Americans used to use and own and think of firearms in gun culture? What was gun culture 1.0 and what is the emerging gun culture 2.0 that you've written so much about? Yeah. I like to go actually back to what I, I, I should call it. I don't know that I've ever called it anywhere in print, but, you know, gun culture 0.0, which is, you know, 1607 in Jamestown or 1620 in Plymouth, you know, uh, colony, you know, that guns have been present in the United States from those original moments of, uh, you know, settler colonialism, as we call it now, uh, but they were very kind of practically oriented. You know, they were tools that people needed to have on the frontier, uh, both, you know, for uh, for survival in terms of eating, survival in terms of uh, defense against um, uh, threats from the outside. So they're very much a common part of American society in the kind of colonial and early Republican era. But I don't think it, they really had a culture around them in the sense of having a lot of meaning beyond being these tools that could be used for defense, hunting, oppression, expansion, resistance to tyranny, you know, those sort of things. But even kind of within that are these other emphases like recreational shooting, you know, that when people were trying to pass time on the frontier, you know, that, uh, a couple guys sitting around with guns and like, hey, who can who can get closer to hitting that tree right there? Right. Uh, you know, in the same way, golf evolved from, you know, people tending sheep and trying to pass the time. So you start hitting with with your canes. Um, so to me, gun culture um, 1.0 is the emergence of that initial culture of hunting beyond just hunting for food and uh, recreational shooting in more kind of formalized ways. So gun culture 2.0 is really centered on recreation in terms of hunting and uh, 1.0, 1.0. Yeah, you gun culture said, yeah, one. Oh, 1. sorry, 0. gun culture right. sorry, one. 1. That's 0. gun culture yeah. one point okay. And that's really the the dominant reality from the mid nineteenth century all the way through the the twentieth century. Although at uh-huh. the end of the twentieth century, it starts to shift more towards an orientation focused on self-defense. So, you know, self-defense has always been a part of guns in America, but it wasn't the main emphasis in the same way that it is today. So the by 2010, uh, defense has really replaced these gun culture 1.0 emphases uh, as the core of American gun culture. And the argument is no, about gun culture 2.0 is not that nobody does anything else other than defense. You know, there are still many subcultures within American gun culture, but the core of, of American gun culture today, whether we look at asking people why they own guns, the, the types of guns that are sold, how guns are advertised, um, you know, the gun training industry, you know, all of that is shifting toward this uh, defensive orientation, which I think dominates American gun culture today. And so this leads me back to that question is, does it work? Do guns work as a defense in, in, um, 
in a home kind of residential. Okay. And I have so many anecdotes. I mean, I have anecdotes from a buddy who's got his concealed carry because he owns a small business. And there were, you know, after there've been disgruntled employees that we had a mass shooting here in the twin cities a couple of years ago of a disgruntled employee came back to his former employer and killed a couple of people. And you know, there's a very, there are very famous stories like Oscar Pistorius shooting his girlfriend through the bathroom door, claiming that he thought she was an intruder, but maybe it was just a domestic dispute. But on the other hand, um, we had like so many cities in uh, late 2021, we had a rash of carjackings here in the Twin Cities, in, including a couple in my very bubblish enclave of a suburb where I live. And there was one in a grocery store parking lot and two boys uh, came up to a woman and tried to get her, you know, carjack her car as she was just get. she had just gotten into her car after loading her groceries in. And um, she kind of resisted them a little bit. A couple other people came up and tried to um, scare them off, but these boys assaulted the people who came up. They tried pulling the woman out of the car. She was still partly strapped into her seatbelt and the car door ran over her and then one of her legs was run over by one of the tires. And another one of the uh, Good Samaritans got hit in the head that these two went to the hospital and a man who has a concealed carry permit walked up from the parking lot, pulled out his gun and the, and the carjackers fled the scene when they saw the firearm. So this is all anecdotes, right? There's bad anecdotes. There's good anecdotes. And I'm wondering what's the data because I I'm skeptical of the fact that the average American could actually use a handgun successfully in a defensive way, just like you had a hard time hitting that target the first time. I mean, I've even told friends who've insisted that they have to get a gun. I've said, if you have to get a firearm for defensive uh, reasons, get a shotgun. Um, because you're less likely to, um, you're less likely to miss. You can probably incapacitate an attacker, um, and it's harder for you know your adolescent son to use it to attempt suicide or something like that. So these are reasons. Again, I have no data. This is all. I'm just throwing you a garbage dump of anecdotes and ideas, and <laughs> yeah. I'd love to hear your responses. Yeah. Well, the, the reality is that the the issues that you're raising, which is one I would say is the kind of uh, guns and crime debate. So, you know, we've had the, the thesis that more, more guns equals less crime because they serve as a deterrent. Uh, and on the other side, people think more guns lead to more crime because they're instruments of criminality. Uh, and the other area of study being of defensive gun use. Now, these are the two areas of scholarship on guns in which there's the least amount of agreement and consensus. Interesting. Uh, and so depending okay. on who you ask, there could be as, as few as 50,000 defensive gun uses a year in the United States, or as many as a few million. 
Wow. Uh, part of that depends on, you know, how do you define a defensive gun use? So in the, the carjacking case you mentioned, uh, the, the, it doesn't sound like the concealed carrier discharged the firearm. He did not. So he, he brandished not. the firearm. Now that wouldn't show up in some defensive gun use statistics because the gun wasn't discharged. Um, now, if you have a, a broader definition, then that is going to be included. And we think that the majority of defensive gun uses in the United States don't entail discharging the gun, right? So you don't have to only look at cases where somebody has been shot or somebody has been shot at as defining that defensive use. Um, so again, nobody knows because it's de partly dependent on definitions, how many defensive gun uses there are. But I think, you know, it's safe to say in a moderate definition that it's, you know, in probably in the hundreds of thousands every mm -hmm. year. Now, within that, is everyone a legitimate, lawful defensive gun use? You know, maybe, maybe not, right? Because there are, are brandishing a firearm at somebody is not always legal. So if someone just thinks that they're in harm and they brandish a firearm, that actually could be uh, against the law. Mm -hmm. um, again, this gets it's a, a more of that complexity of how do we how do we know what an actual kind of quote unquote good defensive gun use is. Uh, but the, so the, unfortunately, the scholarship isn't going to help answer that question okay, for us. Okay. Uh, and you know the question as to whether kind of more liberal concealed carry laws. Uh, either decrease or increase crime, that's also an area in which there's a lot of dispute. So we don't know whether uh, making it easier for people to carry concealed weapons in public by having like a shall issue uh, statute, or now, you know, we have almost half of states in the United States have permitless carry. Um, you know, we don't know whether that, you know, has any effect on, on crime. So, um, you know, it's not that we want to fall back just to anecdote, but it is two areas of study where we don't, we can't just say easily, yes, hmm. the answer is this. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the other part I think is, you know, that part of the, the benefit of owning a firearm for defensive purposes is a kind of psychological benefit, you know, and that, I don't know that that you know, should be discounted. Like most of the, the people who own guns for defensive purposes that I know aren't itching to use them. You know, they don't want to have a violent encounter to justify the fact that they keep a gun for defense. You know, they're perfectly happy never to have to use that, but they, you know, it's kind of, I say, uh, it's the gun version of Pascal's wager, you know, that it's, it's better to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it. So that kind of psychological reassurance. And, I, and we can talk about the potential downsides of that as well, because I right. think you know, they're, they need to be considered in that whole package. Because, because I think going back to your first story about your neighbor in the parking lot and that dispute, um, uh, that would have, it, it, just hearing you tell that story, it seems like maybe you just would have felt more confident if you'd had a firearm, but you probably, you know, chances are, of course, you wouldn't have used it or that the other people in the situation wouldn't have even known that you had a firearm. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, the other thing is we, we often think of the, the dumbest or the worst negative outcomes, you know, um, where 
someone shoots through a door at a sound or someone, you know, comes to their front porch because they've been in a car accident and they need to use a phone to to call for help. And then someone shoots them through the door, which happened in Detroit. Hmm. Uh, You know, someone shoots somebody over popcorn being thrown at them in a theater in Florida. There's so many of those, those anecdotes that, that highlight ways in which adding a gun to a situation makes things worse. Um, But I think that those are newsworthy in part because they are, they're somewhat exceptional. Uh, and that people who take carrying concealed and defensive gun use fairly seriously actually think about all of the things that would need to happen prior to introducing a gun into that situation. So, you know, for me, having you know been at this now for for ten years, you know, I kind of you know revisit this the scenario that I was in when I had that parking lot encounter and think about ways that I could have just handled it differently, which, you know, becoming a gun carrier requires me to think about that, you know, just as a a naive good Samaritan, I didn't think about any of those Mm -hmm. things and really kind of dragged, you know, my, myself, but also in particular, my kids into a situation that could have turned out a lot worse than it did. Right. Uh, how many guns are there in America? Uh, probably over 400 million. So more guns than there are humans. Yes. Um, but I'm guessing the, how, how, what percentage of Americans own a firearm? So again, a little bit unclear, but probably at least a third of individuals own a firearm and at least 40% of Americans live in a home that has a firearm in it. So those that are, means just so I think those are safe conservative estimates. Okay. So a, a third, third and 40%. 40%. So obviously the usually a person who owns a firearm owns more than one firearm. It's a very uneven distribution of firearms in the United States. So, you know, you almost have a kind of bifurcation. Uh, you actually, you know, you really have the the U.S. population is divided into about, say, a third gun owners and a third people who don't own guns and say that they would never own guns. And then a third of the population are actually these gun curious people that I talk about who mm-hmm. they don't currently own guns, but they don't rule out owning guns in the future. So, you know, I think that's an an interesting thing that doesn't often get recognized is it's, you know, two thirds of Americans are at least at some level comfortable with the possibility of owning guns. Now, so the third of individual gun owners um, are almost divided into a couple few different pots, right? So there are what we might think of as being the gun super owners, you know, the about maybe 6% of all gun owners who just own lots of guns, you know, 13 on average, I think is the number, but you know, some might own a hundred guns. And then you have uh, those people who own one or two guns. And an interesting thing about the difference between the kind of people who own lots of guns and the people who own just one or two is that they look different demographically, you know, and the people who own lots of guns are your uh, duck dynasty stereotype of, you know, older, white, rural, conservative men. Uh, But your one or two gun owners tend to be 
your most defensively oriented gun owners and they are more female you know more hmm. racial minority more urban uh, more likely to have young kids, uh, more likely to be politically liberal. Um, not to say that a majority of them are politically liberal, but compared to that other group, you get much, many more liberal. So I say that's the real changing face of gun ownership are those you know one or two gun owning people who get guns for purposes of self-defense, and they tend to be a handgun. I guess that's the other caveat yeah. to add on to that. Yeah, that's interesting because I think I'm thinking how many guns I own. I should know this offhand, but I think I own maybe six, which would get me right close to that super gun owner thing. But I don't consider myself a super gun owner. I'm not a gun nut. They're all long guns. It's like two rifles and four shotguns probably, you know. Um, but I also realize that hunting is you know in is declining almost as fast as american religiosity so <laughs> i know in mo in many ways i'm a dying breed um that it's not why you know it's not people aren't going out and buying shotguns to shoot pheasants so much anymore yeah yeah and then we we're seeing uh you know transition in the gun stock away from long guns and and more toward uh handguns and within long guns obviously you know uh AR platform uh, rifles becoming more popular than your, you know, over under shotguns. Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. Uh, um, but yeah, one thing that I think people who aren't into guns uh, don't really appreciate is how easy it is to accumulate an arsenal of firearms yeah. because uh, you know they're they have different calibers, different types, different purposes. You know, even within the same type and caliber. You know, you you might have uh, your pretty gun and your working gun, uh, and I remember talking on my um, my YouTube channel about um, chainsaws using chainsaws. I saw that video. Yeah. This, uh, Forbes reporter, you know, was writing like nobody buys ten chainsaws, and so I just mentioned that, and the chainsaw nuts came out of the woodwork. I mean, like I can't count the number of people who are right. like. I own 10 chainsaws. I own 15 hammers. I'm like, what, who has 15 hammers? What is that even about? Um, yeah. I'm trying but, to think we've got, I think we've got four chainsaws. Yeah. So we have more guns than chainsaws, but we have multiples of each. Yeah. I mean, but if you add other kinds of saws onto that, I'm yeah. sure you can, you know, oh, so yeah. anyway, like, you know, the people, People, if you're outside of an area, you have no idea how anybody can get that many of whatever that right. that thing is. I mean, uh, it's easier right now probably to buy a gun than it is to buy ammo. Like that's yeah. a, the 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 ammunition shortage for hunters is yeah. really really difficult. And I know just now the prices are going to skyrocket. I'm just dreading that whole you know. Yeah. But I'll spend all summer looking around for shotgun shells. And whenever I see them, I'll buy them. So yeah. I'll have enough to get through next autumn, you know, for shooting. Um, let's talk about the AR platform a bit because it's so controversial. I am not. I I love shotguns and know a lot about them. But when it comes to rifles and handguns, I I don't know that much. I, I shoot a 30-06 because I, I'm a, I shoot deer in heavy woods, you know, in thick cover. And it's just the perfect rifle for Minnesota whitetail deer hunting. Um, 
but past that, I know very little. I've shot ARs before. Uh, I wonder, you know, you know, one thing you hear when people talk about common sense gun laws, let's have common sense. Let's have no more assault rifles. Like nobody wants to take away the deer hunter's rifle, but let's get rid of assault rifles. When you drill down into that, it gets more complex because people like actually an AR isn't, you know, whatever it is, it isn't that powerful of a gun. There, there are more dangerous rifles out there than an AR or something like that. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? And then I do want to move into this kind of, this idea of common sense gun laws and, and this, the political side of it, but tell, tell me a little bit about your thoughts on ARs and, and quote unquote assault rifles or rifles mm -hmm. that were initially designed to kill humans, not white-tailed deer. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the one thing, and I'm not a huge rifle guy, so I'm I'm not the kind of plant your flag from my cold dead hands kind of thing. But I think one one thing that people would argue is probably that, you know, bolt action 30-06 rifle that you hunt with probably was also originally a military weapon. Mm. Uh, and so the the distinction between that's a military weapon and that's a civilian weapon is fairly arbitrary because yeah. you know there are civilian developments that get worked back into military there are military rifles that you know become uh you know civilian rifles nobody's arguing that the you know m1 garand needs to be banned um so you know i think that that that's not a to me a productive line of argumentation um you know that Really, to me, an AR is just the the contemporary version of the rifle that people use, which seemed to be always whatever, you know, rifle was most recently used in war. Mm -hmm. um, and as someone who doesn't hunt, I don't know how easily converted the AR is to hunting purposes, but people who are staunch defenders of the platform routinely talk about, you know, the benefits of it, at least for you know, certain types of hunting um, where you may need, you know, more rounds than you might need to shoot a deer um, and those kind of things. So again, like, you know, the distinction between a military weapon and a civilian weapon, the distinction between a kind of combat weapon and a hunting weapon, some of these things may, you know, be somewhat arbitrary and to kind of go back to our initial discussion of, you know, is something in decline or is something just changing, you know, is this, you know, does the AR represent some sort of major pathological change or is it, uh, you know, just an alter alteration that we've been going through forever? Um, so, you know, I think those are some initial thoughts on the AR. The other thing is, you know, if you, if your main point is to reduce um, killing in in uh, the United States, then you're not going to get much mileage out of banning rifles because, you know, including ARs and every other kind of rifle, there's only hundreds of, of deaths in any given year by rifles and thousands of deaths by handguns. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you, you know, are really trying to say, look, what we're trying to do is prevent death, then you really ought to be trying to ban handguns, not rifles. But Obviously, that's a political non-starter. Um, but uh, why is that? Me, it, well, I think that there's no no strong taste in American society for handgun bans. Mm -hmm. um, in the same way that people don't want to ban rifles in general, right? They want to ban right. 
one particular rifle because it's used in mass shootings right isn't i mean that it's a it's an emotional thing because uh although there are sometimes mass shootings with bolt action hunting rifles it, it's the ar style weapon that's used by you know a kid who storms his high school or something like that yeah yeah and you know i think if if people were at least more upfront and and clear about that it would you know, create different terms of debate, right? If they, people just said, I don't like these things, you know, because some people have used them to do really horrendous things. You know, that at least says, okay, well, you know, I disagree, right? You know, yeah. and as opposed to trying to make these kind of more utilitarian arguments. Um, right. And the other thing is like, any argument for me is like, you know, we if we can do something, we must do something. If we could only save one life by doing this, we should do it. That that's just not how we do public policy because right. there are any number of policies that I could come up which would save children, save older people, save the vulnerable. You know, if we would only lower the speed limit five miles an hour, or you know, make DUIs at 0.0 blood alcohol content that would save thousands of lives but you know we're we're willing to to you know allow a certain amount of carnage in order to have a certain amount of freedom to do things same do you think same goes for legislation about bump stocks or about the size of a clip or things like that yeah i, mean, I think those are all all along the same lines you know that mm-hmm. that you know, one person used a bump stock to do, you know, a crazy massacre. And so you're going to ban bump stocks, you know, for everybody else who, for the most part, just go out and do stupid things at the range with them. Um, well, it's it's like we still take off our shoes at the airport because Richard Reed, right, tried yep. to... And and all he did was burn his foot, <laughs> didn't he? Didn't his yeah, shoe yeah. didn't his shoe explosive not so, really work or something? something like that? Yeah. <laughs> but now I have TSA pre-check, so I can keep my shoes on, but, but I still have to take my belt off. Like, oh gosh, yeah. yeah. This is it's it's <laughs> irrational. It's irrational. Okay, so, this is something that maybe you have some data on though. Um, uh, homicide versus suicide, because you do hear a lot about, and I remember you addressing this at the conference where we met, um, you know, you do hear statistics of particularly young men using handguns sometimes that they've found that were their parents. So this leads me, I mean, my, my follow-up question to the suicide question then is legislation about trigger locks or gun safes or these kind of things, which I realize for people who use guns for, defensive purposes, anything that slows them down from being able to use that gun, they're going to resist. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is a, an, an area of, of real common ground, the suicide prevention uh, idea, because, you know, many people in the gun culture know people who've committed suicide with firearms. And uh, so they, you know, have a vested interest in, trying to you know remedy that problem which is you know about two-thirds of all gun deaths in the United States are, are suicides and a third homicides and very small number of uh, accidental deaths um, 
So, you know, the question comes down to, we can agree on safe storage, but we don't necessarily agree on the definition of safe storage. And certainly there's broad disagreement on whether that should be legally required or just kind of culturally encouraged. Um, and so, you know, I think that working out some of those details within that broad agreement is where I see things happening right now. But there's, uh, you know, certainly the the idea that part of being a responsible gun owner is keeping, you know, uh, unauthorized access to your guns um, is to a minimum. And, you know, whether that means, you know, locking them up in a safe or keeping them on your person, you know, whatever the case may be, you know, nobody should be allowing people who are not authorized to access their guns to, to access their guns. And in most places, that's that's already illegal, you know, to allow a child to access your firearm, right. for example. But again, should should you be required to keep your handgun uh, lockedly? You know, I think that that a lot of people that's a very common uh, gun violence prevention uh, law uh, that's proposed. But I think that you know a lot of gun owners rightfully have concerns about going that far yeah. in terms of legislation. You wonder if you, when you talk about the, um, if it were just culturally encouraged, like even if it were required that with every gun comes a trigger lock and you can't obviously enforce people using them, but even if people had them, you know, more people probably would use them or they'd be pestered by their spouse. Like, Hey, look, if you're going to have a gun in the house, at least put that trigger lock on it or something like that. Um, yeah. 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 And, you know, again, I think this is where we there are people who within the gun culture really trying to you know make arguments within the gun culture to say, look, you need to take responsibility for safely storing or staging your firearms. And, you know, no nobody benefits from, you know, someone accessing your firearm and committing suicide or a child accessing it and, and hurting themselves or somebody else. And. Um, you know, so I think that's that's the direction we're going with a lot of new gun owners coming in uh, in recent years. I think those those people, you know, are fruitfully uh, can be accessed to mm -hmm. to move mm -hmm. things in, in this direction because they tend not to be as familiar with firearms. You know, some some of the the worst people in terms of gun safety are the people who are always always been around guns. My grandfather yeah. had guns and that's my, right. my father had guns and. You know, so I think that that laxness is something that new gun owners tend not to have. And then you can really say, hey, look, you know, you've got a gun now. How do you how are you planning to to store that gun when you're not using it? And, yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, I've, I've been mentoring hunters and they're afraid of their firearms. A lot of them like you, you know, like me, they're not they didn't grow up with them. And I say, don't lose that fear. Like always keep that fear of your firearm and. Uh, cause it's, it's super dangerous as, as fun as it is and to hunt and, and, and effective as it is as a tool in your hunting, it's, it can be really dangerous too. So, well, there's so much more I want to talk to you about. So, uh, you know, with the liberal gun owners group, but I know you're doing some writing, so it won't be long before we'll have you back on to talk about your. New York Times bestselling book, oh, fingers wow. crossed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I've seen some of your writing and and I'm I'm really excited to see. I just think what you're doing is fascinating. And there are not, I mean, 
I, we also just didn't even get it on the gun ownership. I've, I've been warned by other people in the outdoors writing guild, stop talking about common sense gun control, gun laws, or anything like that, because you will get blackballed. You'll never write again, you know, this mm. kind of thing. And I mean, I just don't really care. And you might be a little bit more inoculated from that in the academy, but even so, it's you know what you you might be getting it from the other side. Well, yeah. um, so yeah, I mean, like one thing I would say is I just don't like the term common sense gun laws because uh-huh. basically I think that's a that's not an empirical description. That's a political term, right? So yes. it's basically saying what person could possibly disagree with this law only a person who doesn't even have common sense. Right. Yeah, so, right. Um, you know, so I feel like that, that drives people more apart to say yeah. that. So, you know, if we, we talk about, you know, gun safety legislation, you know, and obviously there's, you know, some people on the, the one wing of gun culture who, you know, no regulations, should be in place, you know, and there are people on the one wing of the gun control movement. It's like, nobody should have guns, but, you know, most people are somewhere in, in the middle on that. And so it's a matter of, of figuring out, you know, we do have a lot of gun laws on the books already. Yeah. Is that enough or is that not enough? Are there ways that we can do more? Uh, and, you know, I think that there are ways in which a lot of the the negative outcomes that people dislike about guns can be addressed, you know, short of doing things legislatively. Mm-hmm. Now, whether we have the political will uh, to do those things is, you know, another question. But. Well, we can we can end the daylight savings time clock shift, <laughs> so we can do anything, David. <laughs> have uh, hope in democracy. Anything is possible. Uh, <laughs> hey, man, yeah. it's been uh, great, and I look forward to crossing paths again and following your research, and I'll, in the show notes, we'll have links to your website and your YouTube channel and and stuff like that, and, and I do look forward to, you know, I'm sure within the next couple of years, you'll have a book out, and it'll be real fun to get back on and talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then uh, we also got to talk about hunting. So, hey, I told you in Vermont, it's an open invitation. So I, I would love to take you hunting. So you name it and uh, we'll do it. I'll even come your way. I know there's some deer down there. I think that there are a few deer down here. So I just have to to see whether I can, uh, you know, get my hands dirty. You know, I like to get my meat the the old fashioned way at the supermarket. In cellophane. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) I know. No, we'll get it. We'll get it to really, we'll get it. We'll get it to meet 0.0 method of, right. of finding it. All right. Thanks. Sounds thanks. Good. All right, Tony. It. Thanks. Thanks.